Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Folks, welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you here on this Friday afternoon. Uh, much more still to get to uh, in our time remaining here today. But off the top in this hour, we uh, certainly live in a, a fascinating world, fascinating universe, really just a fascinating reality. And science can and has told us much about that world, that reality in which we inhabit. But of course, there's still much we don't know. As far as science has come, there, is still, uh, there are still many mysteries about our world, about our reality, about our universe. And this is all explored in a fascinating new book. It's called The Edge of Knowledge, Unsolved Mysteries of the Cosmos. Its author, Lawrence Krauss, an internationally known theoretical physicist, author of hundreds of articles and numerous popular books, including the New York Times bestsellers, The Physics of Star Trek and A Universe from Nothing, joins us on the line here this afternoon. Lawrence Krauss, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks a lot. Nice to be with you, virtually at least. Well, and, and this is a, a really fun new book. And it, it's funny because, you know, on the one hand, saying I don't know or we don't know can be awkward for science and scientists. But at the same time, science is the pursuit of answers. If we knew everything, we, we wouldn't need science, would we? Yeah, well, it's like, as I like to say, it's sort of guaranteed job security for us scientists. <laughs> yeah, that's right. There's always going to be questions. And, 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 but it's more than that. I think more people should be willing to say I don't know. It's, it's because it's an invitation to discover. I often yeah. tell parents and teachers that I wish they'd say, I don't know more often when your kid asks you a question, instead of pretending to know the answer, or is just say, let's, let's, I don't know, let's discover together what, what it's, what it's going to be. Because uh, each time a kid learns something new for them, it's the first time it's ever been understood. And, and, and I think actually, it's, it's it, although it's, it's really the basis of science uh, every day, not knowing and going in to try and figure things out and then hoping and hoping to make progress but then then looking but then also looking to be wrong i mean we we tend to most scientists you know the way to become famous is by proving your colleagues wrong in a way to push the frontiers of, of knowledge forward but but it's also interesting that it was a fun book in a variety of ways because i wanted to bring people up literally to the edge of knowledge to the forefront of modern science but the open questions that, that are at the forefront of modern science are really the same questions that that people that everyone has. You know, a lot of people are intimidated by science, but the questions they have about the universe are the same questions scientists would you know ask at the forefront right now. You know, did the universe have a beginning? How will it end? Uh, uh, can I travel in time? Uh, is, is space infinite? Um, how did life begin on Earth? Is there life elsewhere in the universe? All of these questions that I think many of us have asked ourselves over over time. Uh, are really, really the very topics that scientists are trying to deal with now. Which maybe in a way can inspire, you know, the next generation or future generations of scientists because you, you certainly take the perspective that these are all things that are at least knowable. Even if we don't know them now, we can and maybe will at some point. It, absolutely. In fact, uh, the, at the very end of my book, the epilogue, I, I point out that that's what happened to me. I, I, when I was a teenager... I remember uh, a, a teacher saw me bored and gave me a book uh, by Richard Feynman, a physicist who, who is a wonderful physicist, and I got to know later on, but uh, in many ways an idol of most physicists. 
He wrote a book called The Character of Physical Law. And it was the first time for me uh, when I was in high school to realize that there were still open questions, that the interesting questions had not all been solved. You know, you understand here about Einstein and all these other things, and, and you kind of figure, okay, well, the important stuff has been done. And then for me, it was the first time to know that there was something left to do. And I felt it was like an invitation, a personal invitation. It presented a challenge and an opportunity to move, try and take us further, which I've tried to do in my scientific career. And every now and then, I've been fortunate enough to do that. And I kind of hope, as I say at the end of the book, I don't presume it's going to be the same impact on some young person today. And I hope it does. I hope there's some young person who reads it. And you don't even have to be that young. But someone who reads it who says, hey, this is an invitation to me to, to discover and take us further. Yeah. What's also interesting, too, is, you know, every time we've made enormous discoveries, it kind of opens up new questions. And one of the examples you give in the book was, you know, the decades-long hunt for what's known as the Higgs boson. And science finally found yeah. it. And, wow, we kind of solved this mystery. At the same time, we opened up a whole bunch of new ones, right? So that's part of this process. Yeah, absolutely. That, you know, the, the standard model of particle physics, which I talk about indeed in, in that chapter, is one of the great intellectual voyages that humanity has taken, one of the, one of the edifices of our, of our knowledge. But, but it opens up all of these questions. Yes, we've discovered this particle that's really related to, to why we're here in a very fundamental way. But the properties of the theory, uh, why, why it has the mass it has, why... The, the, the forces of nature have the strength they have, why the particles that we measure have, uh, are the way they are. All of those are open questions. And, in fact, the, everything we know tells us that this Higgs particle, which is discovered, should, should not be there alone. There should be lots of other stuff that would help explain why it's there, but we haven't seen any of it. It's, uh, indeed, the, the, the accelerator in, in Geneva, the CERN accelerator, the Large Hadron Collider, which discovered it, was really, I thought, like many of my colleagues, that would first find something else called supersymmetry, weird new particles that would help us explain why the Higgs was there. And, they, and they're not there, but we discovered the Higgs instead. And it's interesting because these new particles could all, not only just be relevant to the laboratory, but they can form the dark matter that, it, that surrounds our galaxy and all other galaxies that's really responsible for how galaxies form. So, those, you know, you tend to think of, well, big deal. Who cares if there are new particles discovered in a particle accelerator? But those new particles may, in some sense, be the reason we're here, because uh, our galaxy wouldn't have been able to collapse to form stars and planets if there hadn't been this stuff called dark matter, whose identity we don't know. And we're building experiments, not just at CERN, but underground experiments to look for the stuff from the Big Bang. It's one of the things I've spent a lot of my career doing is proposing such experiments, and they're underway right now. So... It, it, you're right. Every time we, we, we discover something new, it, it raises new and more interesting questions. And maybe that's frustrating for some people. But, you know, the, again, Feynman, that great physicist, used to say, well, maybe the universe is just like the cosmic onion. And every time I just, there's, there's no theory of everything. But every time I peel back a layer, there's yet another layer. But that didn't bother him. He said, all I want to do is know more tomorrow than I did today. And and for me, that's the way I feel. It's, it's, there's so many interesting questions out there uh, that I think we should all be excited about them. And, and it's fun for me to try and bring those questions to the public. Yeah. 
Well, and just the universe itself, right? I mean, you know, there's a question of the Big Bang or, or, you know, was there a starting point to our universe? But, you know, this book explores so many other interesting questions like what is our universe made of? Uh, is it the only universe that exists? What might this universe look like to an outside observer? Um, you know, even just the scale. I mean, could a universe exist within an atom inside another universe, right? So well, many well, fascinating these, questions. Exactly. It's, it, it spurs the imagination. And, and what's and, and it's probably one of the biggest changes since I've been a scientist. When I, when I was, started out as a scientist, I think the general consensus was our universe was all there was, and the laws of physics had to be the way they were. Well, now, 40 years later, I think the general consensus of my, myself and my colleagues is that our universe probably isn't unique. There may be an infinite number of other universes, in each of which the laws of physics may be quite different. And the reason the laws of physics are what they are in our universe may be simply an accident and we couldn't have evolved in our universe if they were different and maybe of course in other universes different kinds of things can evolve so it's not as if things were designed for us it's a, it's life is maybe fine-tuned for the universe just like it's fine-tuned for the earth in which we live I mean, the fact that there are such big questions, like, you know, you, there's, you devote a whole section to time and the fundamental question even of what is time or the question of what is gravity or what is life. Like, it almost seems weird in a way that we have these big questions that are, that are actually unanswered. But, you know, there's, there's some pretty good reasons for that. Well, you know, the biggest questions in some ways are the hardest to answer. But, you know, we've made a lot of progress. I think that's the other thing. I mean, the book is a celebration of our knowledge, not just of our ignorance. Yes, we, you know, this allows me an opportunity to take people literally to the edge to show how much we, we, we know. But, but there's still fundamental puzzles. Yeah, you mentioned time. I, one of the reasons I began the book with time is time strikes everyone as strange in a way. Uh, the, the fact that time moves irrevocably forward and, and yet space you can go in a circle in. And, and, and it, it becomes even stranger because Einstein taught us that space and time are really almost the same thing, different aspects of the same thing. Yeah. One person's space could be another person's time. Yet here we are in a universe where it seems like you can do a round trip in space, but as far as we know, you can't do a round trip in time, although many of us would like to do that. And why that's the case is still kind of a mystery. And and in fact, there are places in the universe where where what we call space and what we call time kind of flip, and that's in the, at the, when you enter inside of a black hole, one of the strangest things you know, we've come up with in nature. And, and, and there are many, many puzzles of what of, uh, associated with black holes. And now, of course, we've been able to see them from the outside. But what happens inside is still, right now, a mystery. Wait, does time have an end? Does time end? That's a really good question. And the answer is, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, it looks, it, 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 if I gave you my best guess, it looks like it doesn't. It looks like our universe is going to keep on expanding forever. Now, life may end in our universe and quite likely will. Uh, the universe is going to become expand faster and faster and eventually become cold, dark, and empty, and that looks like it's the future. But it doesn't look like time itself will end. It's not like it's going to, there's going to be a big crunch, the reverse of the Big Bang. That's our best guess. But, in mm -hmm. fact, in 1999, a colleague of mine at the University of Chicago and, and I uh, wrote a paper showing that really we – almost can never answer that question. Uh, we'll never know for sure. As long as the universe keeps expanding, we won't know. Even if, no matter what we learn at the forefront of physics, it, it'll probably be impossible to prove that the universe uh, has the end we think it has. We'd have to have a theorem of everything to know about it. So there may be a, 
an eternal cosmic mystery, and that's, of course, eternal job security. There's also the question of dimensions, and I find it interesting because, you know, on that point about what's knowable, like the idea if... You know, if, if something inhabited a two-dimensional world, the, the idea of a third dimension would just seem beyond comprehension. Can, can humans ever answer the question of whether other dimensions exist? Well, you know, that's, again, a, a great question. I, I wrote a whole book, actually, about, about our fascination with extra dimensions. And you may have read when you were younger the book Flatland, which is a wonderful book if you haven't. It's a science, the mathematical love story um, written about the turn of the, the beginning of the 20th century um, or late 1800s and it's about two-dimensional beings and and who discover a three-dimensional being and how they can begin to mm. comprehend what's going on there and and our current picture of physics like when we try and understand the nature of gravity and how it might relate to quantum mechanics it, it with string theories strongly suggest there may be other dimensions but they are invisible to us with our normal tools and whether we will ever be able to get direct evidence of those extra dimensions is still if they exist it's still an open question one of my one of my normally the the, the way we we get around the question of if there are extra dimensions how come we don't see them is to say that those extra dimensions are really small they're they're sort of circular they're they're and and they're and they wound up on such a small scale that we can't probe them with our microscopes or accelerators. But it could be, as, as I described in the book, and one of my students was involved in showing it, there could be ex actually extra dimensions that are infinitely big, but, but the forces that we experience on Earth don't, don't go into those extra dimensions, except perhaps for gravity. And that, that theory can be at least be tested in potentially in, in particle accelerators. So there's some hope. I think it's unlikely, I should say, but if there's some hope, we might be able to do particle physics experiments to to get some idea. But but it's going to be really hard to prove for certain experimentally that there are extra dimensions. But what could happen is that we have a theory that's so good that it so, explains so many other things about the world we see, uh, you know, gives the mass of elementary particles and the four forces of nature and all of those things, and it predicts the existence of extra dimensions. And we say, well... Since it answers 50 of the questions we have about the world, we'll believe the 51st. And we may, we may, be, we may be stuck with that, ultimately. Uh, you know, as, as you go through the book, and, and you can tell that in some areas, maybe we are closer to answers than others. And I think when it comes to some of these, these big themes that, you know, the answers to some would have bigger ramifications than others. So some have yeah. greater significance. Others maybe we're closer to answers on. Which stand out to you as, you know, the big ones on both of those counts, maybe the ones where we're, we're closest to some tantalizing kind of answers and the ones that maybe matter the most? Well, you know, I think the last, the last two chapters of the book move away from physics, per se, uh, to, be, to, to both chemistry and biology. They involve life and consciousness. Mm -hmm. And I think they're good examples of the two different extremes you just talked about. Uh, we've learned a tremendous amount about the nature of life and and the origin of life certainly seemed very puzzling, but in the last few decades, a tremendous amount of work has been done to, to suggest what, what the first forms of life may have been like in the RNA world. The RNA, which is, which is uh, like DNA, is one of the bases of, of modern genetics, but, but it, there's evidence to suggest that the earliest forms of life might have not have had DNA but RNA. And the big question was, how can these complex molecules form in the early Earth? And there's been a tremendous amount of work 
uh, and, and interesting discoveries that suggest mechanisms, maybe even in asteroids uh, where there's a lot of ultraviolet light. And by the way, in asteroids, we already see organic materials. Uh, we see amino acids. And so it, there could be the chemistry of life could have basically built up almost to get biology even before the Earth formed. After all, the life on Earth evolved about as soon as the laws of physics would have allowed it, as soon as it, there was the early bombardment by large meteorites and asteroids stopped after the first 100 million years. The oldest forms of life, the fossils, are 4 billion years old. And, and, that, and, you know, and, and that's about as early as they could possibly have formed. And so I think in terms of understanding the origin of life, we may, discuss, we may have a really good argument for the origin of life in the next decade or two. And also, of course, the other big question is there life elsewhere in the universe? With the new James Webb Space Telescope and other telescopes and missions to Europa and Enceladus, there's a chance, I think, we'll discover that there is life elsewhere in the universe. Not, not intelligent life, necessarily, but microbial life. And that itself would be a huge discovery, because it would indicate, um, you know, we now know, for example, we didn't know four decades ago that every star essentially has planetary systems around it. We've discovered over 5,000 planetary systems around stars. So so there's lots of opportunities for habitable planets. So all of that is evolving quite quickly. And because the new tools are coming online, and science is really driven by new tools, I suspect that when it comes to life, we're going to, in the next decade or two, there's going to be some profound and revolutionary developments in our understanding. Consciousness, however, which, of course, intrigues all of us. Yeah. We'd all love to get in the mind of someone else or wonder whether other people, when they see green, see the same thing we see. That's a much harder problem because we're stuck in our own brains. And we can't really probe other people. As I show in the, in the book, people think they do something for a reason, but often we find out that, that the mind is fooling them, that the processes of consciousness are, are really not accessible to your, your awareness. And, um, and it may be that I, I think it's so complex that, as I described at the end of the book, it may be that the only way we'll understand consciousness is to develop conscious entities by AI. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I don't think that's close, by the way. I don't think it's around the corner. But, it, but the, again, to turn back to Feynman, he, he once said, uh, if you can't build it, you don't understand it. And it may be that the first way we'll understand consciousness is by literally building conscious systems. And I think that's a long way off. But that may be the only way we'll understand it. Really interesting. Yeah, the book is called The Edge of Knowledge, Unsolved Mysteries of the Cosmos. Much more at lawrencemkraus.com. Professor Kraus, thank you so much for this. Really appreciate you joining us here today. Well, thanks. It was a really, really great question. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks again. Likewise. Appreciate it. There you go. That's uh, theoretical physicist Lawrence Krauss, best-selling author as well. His latest called The Edge of Knowledge. We'll take a time out here. My name is Rob Breckenridge. Back with more right after this. We mentioned uh, the piece in the Globe and Mail today from Jen Gerson, who's also co-founder of The Line, theline.substack.com, and joins us on the line here this afternoon. Jen, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Sorry I'm late. No, no worries. Glad we got you on the line. I think it was an interesting piece you wrote today because we seem to be sort of divided here on whether this is a, a bad thing or why are we getting worked up about all of this. What have you made of the, some of the discourse this week, first of all? Well, it's been definitely twofold. You've got, well, on one hand, the uh, the traditionalists who uh, object to the passport both on historic and on aesthetic grounds. Most of my objections to the new passport are just 
based on the fact that it's just ugly. It's a really ugly little piece of thing. Yes. Um, and I can get into I can get into that. There don't seem to be very many defenders out there of the passport as an aesthetic document. <laughs> Even the people who think that, that, that the traditionalists are getting too worked up don't seem to be particularly interested in defending the actual aesthetic merits of the redesign, which I think, think is very interesting. And then there's a lot of people who are just like, you angry conservatives, you're just getting riled up over nothing. Um, and then there are the more traditionalists who uh, really object to the fact that, um, the, the, that the passport is stripping away any kind of historic monuments, any heroes, any kind of sense of anything that really gives Canada a unique sense of identity or flavor and being replaced with, frankly, you know, generic Microsoft clip art, which is what this stuff kind of looks like. And what does that say about the government that, um, that, that, is, that is actually trying to lead us? And what does that say about... Uh, the, the the national identity, as it were, um, and you know, in and of itself, I don't think that there would be much to that argument, except for the fact that it does seem to come on the heels of um, a lot of things that have been happening happening in the broader culture generally. That would suggest that you know, Canadians and particularly progressive Canadians treat our national identity and our history as something of an embarrassing anachronism and something to be sort of um, ashamed of and hidden away. And that would be fine and good, I guess, except for the fact that they don't seem to be able to offer a compelling alternative vision by which we can build a, the concept of, an, of, an, of a nationality around. And I think that that is where the, why this particular passport redesign, which normally would be an absolute like nothing burgers and something nobody should comment about or care at all, but that's why this thing has has actually become kind of a weird, funny little debate. It has. I, and I don't know what to read into the decision to remove these images, because as you say, to some that maybe having the Vimy Memorial somehow seems provocative or politically loaded. I don't know if the government subscribes to these views, but how do we make sense of, of these decisions to, to remove this altogether? Well, again, like in isolation, nothing. It could just be just a bad redesign. Like there could be really no more political thought to it than that. But it's not happening in isolation. You know, it's happening at a moment where, it, um, you know, where we're, we're, we're struggling with our legacy around uh, residential schools, where, um, you know, statues of historical figures are being topped, schools are being renamed. It seems like all of the identifying items of, of, of a nationality, it's something that you know, a lot of people are, are very attached to, are being challenged and toppled from within. So this is, this is, this is one of a, of a chain of events here, and it seems to be the flashpoint, the straw that's going to break the camel's back, so to speak. It does seem like another example of kind of ineptitude on the government's part, in part, uh, you know, just a misreading of how some of these things are going to go over. What do you make of how they handled this? And do you, do you think that they expected this would be a non-issue? Were they caught off guard, do you think? I'm sure that they must have been caught off guard because the whole nothing about the passport reads to me as something that was well thought out or designed. So I did I don't read it as some kind of purposeful political statement. I read it just more as designed by committee that led to something kind of disastrous and messy and awful. Um, uh, so I I I wouldn't be surprised that they actually genuinely were quite taken aback by by the fact that there was any reaction at all to this. Um, but you know, I, again, this is this is a misreading and a, and a disconnect between Ottawa and, and politicians and the people who are doing the designing, who are you know civil servants and obviously not the prime minister directly. But you know, the sort of people who are are running the civil service are just increasingly disconnected from the values of, frankly, ordinary Canadians. And I think this is where you get a lot of the populist, anti-elitist juice that is fueling the rise of people like Pierre Polyev and people like him around the world, right?
Yeah, a while ago, it would have been hard to imagine the idea of this being like an election issue where, you know, the conservatives are making a promise to to change the passport back. But after the last few days, I could easily see that uh, yeah. being an election issue. Yeah, I actually, I actually, I kind of joked on Twitter and people got very offended on Twitter, which is always very funny. But um, I just joked, it's like, I will be a single issue, issue voter on the right. person who changes the passport back, right? Um, uh, and of course, that was a joke. But uh, yeah, it kind of, it kind of is because it's, it's, it's not just the passport, it's everything the passport and what they're doing represents, right? Like, it's the attempt to create this weird post-national state that doesn't actually have any concept of a national identity, right? The, and, and I think that, that a lot of Canadians, and particularly older Canadians, and I guess I'm in that camp now, being, you know, almost 40 now, oh God wow. forbid, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, are offended by that. They're like, what, what is this vision that you were that you are ashamed of and what is it that you are trying to replace it with because all I'm seeing here are clip art. I'm not seeing a positive concept of Canada that, you know, stokes the heart or raises my 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 loins to gird, so to speak. Like I'm not seeing anything we're sacrificing for here. It's I'm tacky. Seeing, it's tacky and it, yeah, <laughs> tacky exactly. should just, be called out. It's tacky. And and there's also you know, I mean let's be blunt. We have generations of Canadians who actually did sacrifice their lives because of a call to call to calls to wars over the many generations that were that were fundamentally nationalistic in identity. And and you know Younger generations may not be able to fully understand or grasp that, but that's what it is. That's that's there was a there was a concept of nationhood there that people have have an emotional attachment to, um, and that emotional attachment is is a necessary binding agent for any kind of national identity. I and mean, it's a necessary it's a necessary binding agent, particularly when you're trying to scrap together a nation, you know, across some thousands of kilometers um, in a relatively sparsely populated land with less and less shared history and shared common identity, yeah. right? Um, you know, good luck trying to do that if you don't have a national story and a set of national symbols that you can stand behind. And the lack of imagination on display would suggest that to me. Yeah. It's a great piece up at theglobeandmail.com. Much more at theline.substack.com. Jen, thanks for making some time for us here. Have a great weekend. Anytime. Thanks. Bye. There you go. So, unfortunately, governments are not great stewards of our tax dollars. But, uh, you know, not all bad decisions are created equal. Some are worse than others. And uh, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation has an interesting uh, approach to highlighting some of these examples. Maybe some of the more egregious ways in which uh, governments waste our money. And in the hope, I guess, that... It will uh, discourage this sort of thing. The Teddy Award is is not something that uh, anyone in government wants to win. Uh, but unfortunately, again, this year's crop of quote-unquote winners illustrates maybe why this is necessary. Uh, so these were handed out last night. Uh, in fact, I believe right here in Calgary, as a matter of fact. Uh, anyway, more at taxpayer.com. But joining us to talk about the Teddy Awards and uh, this year's crop of uh, Honorees is uh, Franco Terrazano, uh, Federal Director with the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Franco, good to have you with us here. Welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on today, Rob. Uh, give us a bit of the background here. This is the 25th anniversary of the Teddy Awards. We're actually named after somebody. Tell us a bit more, first <laughs> yeah. of all, about what we're, we're dealing with here. Yeah, yeah. Named after Ted Weatherall. He was a federal appointee um, who expensed it by, who, who is famous, I guess, for expensing a $700 lunch for two. 
Um, so we have named the teddies after that waist. And for 25 years, we've been handing these big golden-shaped pig trophies to some of the worst waste offenders, to the people, the politicians, the bureaucrats in government who had the worst or maybe the silliest way to waste taxpayers' money. Right. And this isn't necessarily about the dollar figure, right? Like uh, a $1,000 expense, uh, you know, can still stand out here, right? It's So how, how are you judging, uh, you know, spending <laughs> decisions versus other spending decisions? Well, it's certainly subjective. I mean, we do have some really big uh, wasteful spending yeah. ones, right? Like we've given out awards to Bombardier, uh, this year's Lifetime Achievement Award, which we'll get into is a whole huge amount of money. But then we go after some of the smaller stuff too, right? Uh, a nominee this year didn't win, but it was the uh, Global Affairs Canada giving or spending about $12,000 on uh, these stage performances around the world where seniors in other countries would talk about their sex stories. Right. in front of a live audience, right? Um, now, I don't have any kids, but I'm pretty sure when parents tell their children to listen to their elders, that's not what they have in mind. Um, so it's a little bit subjective for sure. And one of the hardest days of being a Canadian Taxpayers Federation director is when we try to argue over which was the worst and funniest example of waste in the year because there's so many contenders out there. Right. And I mean, you know, the provincial winner that we can get to, I mean, that's one we're talking about a big price tag. But the municipal mm-hmm. winner is a good example of how, you know, relatively small price tag can still be pretty outrageous from a taxpayer's perspective. Tell us about the municipal yeah. Teddy win. Well, this one was a scandal. I mean, uh, plain and simple. Uh, this one was just uh, plain wrong. So in Charlottetown, you have a counselor there, Alana Yankoff. And so she completely re- redid her house, renovated her house. One of the things that they did was they had to move their driveway. <laughs> now, where is the worst possible place to move your driveway? Around a telephone pole. I swear to goodness, people, uh, she, she redid her driveway and put it right behind a telephone pole. Now, if you were to wonder who should pay to remove that telephone pole, you'd probably say the person who put the driveway there. Yes. But no, no, no. Miss Yankov billed taxpayers for 4600 bucks to remove the telephone pole. So that's a very good example. You know, it's not the biggest expense. It's, it's, it's certainly less money than some of the other winners. Mm-hmm. However, it's just, it's just ridiculous, right? Because another crazy question that all this brings up is, did you see the, the telephone pole there when you decided to, to build your driveway in that area? Because if you didn't see the telephone pole there, maybe driving's not for you. Yeah, no kidding. That's a bizarre one. So, uh, as mentioned, though, the provincial winner this year, uh, a much bigger price tag, but um, this is uh, out of Quebec. This is the creation of an app. And again, you know, I mean, we're told that, you know, this kind of technology can really make government more efficient, but uh, not here. Yeah, so the Quebec always has uh, a long list of wasteful spenders. This one really took the cake this year. So they created this app about $450 million hit to the taxpayer. And so in Quebec, they're the only province that requires their drivers to renew the license every single year. Now, they wanted to do two things. They wanted to make the system less onerous on drivers of Quebec, and they wanted to reduce the number of bureaucrats that are required to to get these drivers' license renewed. Okay, so did Quebec do the obvious thing, which is, what every other province does, don't make drivers renew their license every year? No. The Quebec's unique solution to all of this was to create an app. Now, that sounds like maybe it could work. Mm-hmm. The problem is the app created such a disaster, the government of Quebec had to hire an extra 150 bureaucrats 
to solve the issue or to at least clean up the mess that it created. And that came at quite a cost. $458 million. Wow. Yeah, what a mess. Uh, now let's touch on the federal winner because uh, I remember this being in the news. Like th- this was uh, a controversy, a scandal. Uh, this concerns Canada's Governor General, Mary Simon, who is uh, the federal Teddy w- winner this year. <laughs> Refresh people uh, on this story and some rather uh, expensive meals for the entourage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's not, it's not an easy thing to do to outspend Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, uh, but our Governor General said, hold my beef Wellington, uh, because she racked up about $100,000 on fancy airplane food during a week-long trip. Now, a couple things here, a little background story. So, when they were in committee talking about this trip, the bureaucrats were like, we can't produce the receipts. Now, what's so funny about that is that the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, we already had the receipts and we're making them public. We got them through an access to information request. And they show that the words that they were trying to sell the public on just were not adding up. Governor General Mary Simon was trying to say, you know, this was mostly like normal airline food. Well, here's what they were having. Beef Wellington with Reju, Carpaccio, stuffed pork tenderloin. Now, Rob, I don't know about you. You know, I fly uh, every now and again, Air Canada WestJet. We can't even get Beef Wellington flavored chips, let alone actually Beef Wellington. So certainly... The meals that they were having, the nearly $100,000 racked up in fancy airplane food, that's not like what most Canadians are having when we're, when we're flying. No, and, you know, again, we're talking about meals here, right? So um, this was, in, in that context, a pretty eye-popping price tag. Well, for sure, yeah, $100,000 on, on fancy airplane food during a week-long trip. Now the entire trip for one week was about $1.3 million, more than a million dollars on a, on a one-week trip uh, to Expo 2020 in Dubai. You know what? I still haven't heard the government actually give any type of explanation to Canadian taxpayers what kind of value we got for the $1 million trip. Also, remember, it wasn't just the Governor General on this trip. She had an entourage of 29 people. Why are taxpayers paying for 29 people to go to uh, Expo 2020 in Dubai? Yeah, very good question. Uh, and you did mention as well, let's touch on this, uh, Lifetime Achievement Award winner, or rather a notorious government agency. What's going on at the Canada Revenue Agency? <laughs> yeah, well, they finally give us the answer to the question, what do inmates, dead people, and teenagers have in common? They got the serve, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the CRA gave the serve to hundreds of people who were inmates in jail, uh, hundreds of people under the age of 15, hundreds of people who were not residing in Canada, and they even gave 391 dead people the serve. You know, uh, Rob, it kind of reminds me, puts a little scary twist on M. Night Shyamalan's The Sixth Sense. Remember when he's like, I see dead people? Well, in Canada, <laughs> we subsidize dead yeah, people. Apparently. Now, you know, this was a huge expense, right? We're talking about potentially $32 billion in uh, ineligible or questionable subsidies that went out the door during COVID-19, according to the Auditor General. And the CRA has essentially said it's not worth their time to fully investigate this potential waste. Now, that might strike you as surprising because if you forget to carry the one on your tax return, the CRA will send the hounds after you. But now we're talking about potentially billions and billions of dollars of potential misspending, and all of a sudden the CRA is too busy to fully investigate it. Yeah, pretty outrageous. Uh, more details uh, on all the winners, as mentioned, taxpayer.com. Uh, Franco, by the way, um, you know, you have these nice little 
pig statues. Did you actually send these to the uh, to the winners each year? <laughs> you know, we should do that. I should when I get back to Ottawa because we're in Calgary. We we did the event in Calgary last night. I should bring it to Rideau Hall, shouldn't I? Yeah, maybe you should. All right, thanks again, Franco. Appreciate it. Thanks, Rob. All the best. There you go. Franco Terrazano, Federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. On the annual Teddy Awards, 25th anniversary, in fact, uh, awards handed out last night in Calgary. Uh, The City of Calgary, by the way, was uh, a nominee uh, in the category uh, of best or worst, depending on your perspective, municipal waste. Uh, The city of Calgary was nominated for, as it says here, flushing money down the toilet while the toilet is closed off from the public. Uh, Calgary spent $250,000 to build an outdoor toilet downtown. It costs $50,000 a year to keep the toilet running. The city shut the toilet down and confirmed it would cost $5,000 annually to keep the facility closed. Uh, A worthy nominee. Uh, But ultimately, as mentioned, it was this uh, politician in Charlottetown who won. I mean, that's just crazy. Yeah, $4,600 isn't a, a huge amount of money. But what a slap in the face to taxpayers. Of course, uh, this weekend is Mother's Day Sunday, an opportunity, I guess, to talk about what it is that day represents or is supposed to represent. Kind of a conversation about motherhood and some of the, the pressures and expectations that society creates around motherhood. Now, this is all the subject of a really interesting new book. It's called Momfluenced, Inside the Maddening Picture-Perfect World of Mommy Influencer Culture. And like in so many other aspects of our lives, social media has a, had a huge influence when it comes to motherhood. And again, those pressures and expectations. Well, joining us to talk more about these issues is the author of the new book, Momfluenced. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Sarah Peterson. Sarah, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hi, thank you for having me. First of all, let's get a sense of what we mean when we talk about the the mommy influencer culture, what that is, and and I guess from your own personal perspective, how you first became aware of it. Yeah, um, generally speaking, a momfluencer is someone who has utilized her identity as a mother uh, to monetize a social media platform. Um, So she primarily earns money through sponsored content, Um, You know, brands will pay her to post Instagram stories or reels about their product and through affiliate links, which is when, you know, if she's wearing a certain outfit, you can click through to where to buy the outfit and she'll get a uh, portion of those proceeds. Um, And for the purpose of my book, I really looked at how we're all to an extent um, asked to perform our motherhood, not only on social media, but in many avenues of life. Um, yeah, so it's looking at how we value the aesthetics of motherhood and how we often don't value the labor of mothering. Right, because I think that, you know, the societal expectations or even just peer pressure, like that's always kind of been there, hasn't it? Yeah, for sure. It's it's just that it hasn't always been, um, you know, always accessible in our back pocket, you know, via our phones and Mm -hmm. on our, you know, computer screens. Um, we now shop so much through Instagram and social media um, in a way that is really can be really all-consuming. And so many of the things we're asked to buy as mothers are directly tied to our fitness as mothers, um, our ability to adhere to certain maternal ideals in a way that's really different for fathers, for example. Yeah, I think, yeah, you're right. I mean, there's, there's probably much less of a, a dad-fluencer uh, culture out there. Yeah. 
right? But you know, in so totally. many, I mean, there, there are these kinds of pressures that exist on people in other ways. The you know the the point that you know your life isn't what it should be, or you're somehow falling short of what you should be. But when it comes to to motherhood, like that takes on a deeper meaning. Like I, you know, there's there's a lot of I would imagine guilt that comes along with that sense that you're not being everything you're supposed to be. Like, what, what do you see as, you know, the, the potential harms or the actual harms of, of this kind of pressure? Yeah, it's, it's a ton of pressure. Um, in the U.S. specifically, we don't have um, federal paid leave. We don't have access to affordable um, quality child care often. Um, our bodily autonomy is up for debate. Right. Um, maternal health care is incomprehensive and often racist and fatphobic. So there's so many ways that we are systemically failed in the U.S., and yet we are expected to, you know, be experts, child, experts in child care, experts in interior design, experts in cooking and baking, experts at, you know, mental health when it comes to something our, you know, kid might be struggling with. Um and none of us are born innately knowing how to do this. So we're all sort of looking for a way to embody this role of motherhood in a way that feels better to us. Um, many of us are just chronically burnt out. So it makes sense to me that we're you know, going to Instagram and, and TikTok looking for sort of blueprints for how to do this and how to do it well. Well, you say it's, it's, it's an industry, though. It's a business. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's a multi-billion dollar business. Um, and really, many of these monetized influencers have taken the place of traditional women's advertising, you know, prior to this culture, you know, this advertising was on TV or in glossy women's mags. And now more than ever, we are led to buy things from these women who we've formed parasocial relationships with. How is it different from, you know, celebrity culture, right, where you see uh, celebrities and, you know, they have kids and, wow, look, they're in amazing shape and, wow, they're doing a movie and, wow, there's some photos of them spending time with their kids and everybody looks so happy. Like, there's so much else that goes into that, obviously, the money to yeah. to hire additional help and trainers, right, nannies and nutritionists and, and everything else. But you see those images in the tabloids. It's kind of like social media. You see the pictures that people post that are shaped a certain way but they're not really telling anything even approaching, I, I think, you know, reality. Yeah, I mean, I would say the major difference between celebrity culture and momfluencer culture is that the real power of momfluencers is their ability to make their consumers feel as though they know them to some extent. Mm -hmm. um, and they also traffic in, quote-unquote, authenticity, um, in order to sell people stuff, the people being sold to want to feel as though, you know, this person has similar values to me. This person um, has similar aesthetics to me. It's really contingent on the symbiotic relationship between consumer and momfluencer in a way that celebrity culture isn't. Right. And it certainly doesn't sound like it's, it's going away anytime soon. Yeah, no, I can't. I mean, social media is so new and the, you know, the internet in terms of human history is so new. It's, I, I can't see it going anywhere anytime soon, but I am curious to see how it evolves for sure, especially um, when we're considering things like children's privacy and their abil ability to consent. 
um, to, you know, participating in some of these social media campaigns. I think you partly answered this question, even though I haven't asked it, but Sunday is Mother's Day. <laughs> Did you feel <laughs> like it's, I don't know, an, an empty holiday? Yeah, I really, really do. Um, particularly post-pandemic, particularly with the attack attack on uh, reproductive rights, it, it feels a little more insulting every year. Um, so many mothers are so desperate and, you know, needing, you know, advocacy and change in terms of legislation and systemic um, powers, and we're not getting it. Um, Instead, we get one year, one day a year to have like soggy pancakes and bread in bed. And it just, it just feels so not enough to be told that our job is the most important job in the world. And yet this job is unpaid, unsupported and uh, culturally disrespected in many ways. Now, the book itself came out a few weeks ago. What, what's the reaction been like so far? Um, I, I think people are hungry for this type of conversation. Um, I think mothers really want to, you know, feel as though we're engaging in conversations about their lives, not just how a mother should look or be you know, what sort of box she should fit into, but, you know, really our lives, which mm-hmm. are made up of labor and desires. And I think this culture really taps into a lot of that. Um, so, yeah, I've heard a lot of really wonderful things from readers who feel validated and seen by the book, which, you know, makes me so happy. And it's not just a book for moms. I mean, what what do you think that uh, men should take from it? Men as husbands, men as fathers, men as sons. Um, I think just a reckoning with how motherhood is so culturally fraught in a way that fatherhood isn't. Motherhood is often baked into a national identity. Motherhood is... Uh, Um, a marketing category in ways that fatherhood isn't. And so much is expected of mothers and has been for, you know, several hundred years. Um, And I think just for folks that aren't mothers to recognize that we should all be caretaking our children, you know, the the expression, um, it takes a village. Like that's, that's, that's real. That's not just a pithy little saying. Like it does take a village. It takes teachers. It takes healthcare providers. It takes partners. It takes family members. It takes friends. And regardless of whether or not we have kids, we should all be invested in raising, you know, the next generation of humans. Absolutely. Well, again, the book is called Mom Fluenced Inside the Maddening Picture Perfect World of Mommy Influencer Culture. Uh, much more at sarah peterson.com. Sarah, thanks so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate this. Thank you so much. All the best. There you go. That's uh, Sarah Peterson, uh, author of the new book, Mom Fluence. So, an interesting conversation uh, about motherhood uh, just ahead of the day in which we're at least ostensibly celebrating it. Uh, so, what do you make of, of that? Uh, your perspective then, maybe as a mom? You, do you share those concerns or feel that the same way? You know, back to the point about celebrity culture, it is interesting. Just this week, uh, the, it was in the news that uh, Robert De Niro is becoming a father again at the age of 79. And everyone just kind of like, oh, okay, that's, I don't know, that's weird. All right. 
I mean, imagine, though, if you hear about a you know famous actress who's even, you know, nowhere near that age, obviously, but like, wow, so-and-so's having a child at um, the age of 50 or 45. She's pregnant. I think the reaction would be like, well, what? You know, it seems like it's a lot more kind of um, judgmental, maybe. So perhaps that speaks to some of it. I got this text, too, with regard to social media. Uh, like it says, you know, dad goes on to a dad's group on Facebook, asks a question the dads will answer. Mom goes on to a mom's book on Facebook, asks a question some moms will answer. But there's a lot of, uh, you know, extremely judgy comments, people losing their minds, even if the question is uh, incredibly simple. They'll pile on that mom shall feel worse and more confused than she did before posting. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.